Welcome to Cancer HealthCast, where science is driving hope. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. We often hear about certain common cancers, such as lung or breast cancer, but there are other rarer cancers that still affect many different people out there. One of those cancers is anal cancer. Anal cancer may be a rarer form of cancer, but its incidence has been on the rise for a few decades now, especially for those in specific risk groups. Among those at highest risk are men with HIV who have sex with other men. Amid these trends, the National Cancer Institute decided to launch a study to examine how certain treatment in HIV-infected individuals can prevent anal cancer from developing. In particular, the study looked to see if early treatment of high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, or H-cells, could prevent anal cancer from developing. Just for some background context, cancers like cervical and anal cancer are often caused by human papillomavirus, or HPV. H-cells are a squamous cell abnormality associated with HPV, and while H-cells rarely cause symptoms, they often precede cervical and anal cancer. So just imagine for a moment, if we could identify and treat H-cells in patients ahead of time, could that be an effective tool for preventing anal cancer? That's where NCI's study came in. Launched in 2014, NCI started the ANCHOR study, also known as the Anal Cancer H-Cell Outcomes Research Study. We'll go into the study setup in logistics in a moment, but the ANCHOR study made some big news last month when it published findings that treatment of H-cells reduces the chance that anal cancer will develop by more than half. So today, we'll talk with two leaders behind the study, NCI's Office of HIV and AIDS Malignancy Director, Dr. Robert Yarshon, and University of California, San Francisco Professor of Medicine, Dr. Joel Pilewski, to dig into the study. We'll learn about treatment options for H-cells, what studies like this mean for underrepresented populations and research for niche types of cancer, and where the ANCHOR study will go moving forward. Thank you, Bob and Joel, for joining us for this episode of Cancer HealthCast. Um, really looking forward to learning about the Anchor study um, that we're here to chat about. So I want to start just by contextualizing the background of the study. NCI launched it in 2014. So what led you to sort of initiate the study? What kinds of questions were you hoping to explore and answer? And can you walk us through what the setup was like and some of the milestones you met along the way? Sure. Um, I, I can maybe take a stab at that. Um, and, and it's worthwhile going back to the beginning of the AIDS epidemic back in 1981 when it was first recognized. At that time, when this new disease appeared, one of the things that was noticed was that a number of men who have sex with men were appearing with Kaposi's sarcoma, which was hitherto a rare skin cancer. Um, and in fact, as this cluster of conditions that we now call AIDS came together, um, it became evident that these patients were susceptible to a number of cancers, but not all cancers. Um, Kaposi's sarcoma, certain types of lymphoma, and um, and so on. And most of these are viral-induced cancers that are associated with severe immunodeficiency that people get with HIV. And um, a type of cell called the CD4 cell is killed by the virus and drops. 
Um, later on in the in the late eighties, and then as protease inhibitors were developed in the in the mid nineteen um, nineties, we developed the ability to really treat HIV infection very well. And the number of people dying of AIDS dropped. Um, people started reconstituting their immune system, and we had a pretty dramatic drop in these tumors that were associated with immunodeficiency. But at the same time, people with HIV were, were living longer, and um, a number of people continued to get infected. So the number of people with AIDS actually increased in this country and continues to increase, um, and the population became older. And while the, these tumors that are associated with immunodeficiency decreased, we started to see some others that are associated with less immunosuppression. And one of the tumors that was increasing the most was, was anal cancer. Um, this is a tumor that's caused by a virus called um, papillomavirus. It's the same virus that causes cervical cancer. And, um, the, uh, and it's associated with low immunity. And the, the, the incidence in this in men who have sex with men and were HIV infected increased fairly dramatically. At about that time, um, Joel Pilevsky and the AIDS Malignancy Consortium had been considering um, how to potentially screen for this. Um, and with cervical cancer, it's known that if you treat a precursor lesion, um, you can prevent it. But this hadn't been shown for anal cancer. And they were thinking about this. And that combined with the increase in um, the incidence of this really led the, the Cancer Institute to um, to strongly consider and then go and approve a large-scale study to see whether treating this condition called HSO would prevent anal cancer. Joel, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the one of the interesting things has been the difference between the HPV-associated cancers and the other cancers, like Kaposi's that you mentioned. They decreased a lot with the advent of antiretroviral therapy, but cervical cancer didn't. And cervical cancer, which of course is also associated with HPV and very similar biologically to anal cancer, was one of the original AIDS-defining cancers. One of the reasons why we were very concerned about anal cancer was that we had a sense that HPV infection, the causative event was very common in people with HIV. Uh, we knew that because prior to the HIV epidemic, anal warts were uh, almost the most common STI, as sexually transmitted infection in this group. Those are also associated with HPV. So we and many others did a number of studies to prepare, if you will, for the anchor study to get a, a handle on how common anal HPV infection is in people with HIV and how common the precursor lesion is, the high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, or HSIL. And as we were predicting, we actually found an alarmingly high prevalence of both HPV infection and HSIL in virtually every group of people living with HIV. At that point, combined with the high incidence of anal cancer, it really necessitated that we have an approach to trying to prevent that cancer. We knew that we can do that in the cervix through the pap smear screening system, identifying women who would get the next step in the diagnostic workup, which is called colposcopy, basically a rolling microscope 
to visualize the cervix and identify areas of possible HSIL and then remove them to prevent progression to cancer. We knew that worked even in people with HIV. And so it stood to reason that it might work in the ANUS 2 but to make a formal standard of care guideline recommendation, we really needed high quality evidence to prove that. So that's where the anchor study really started from, but we also realized that there are a number of other scientific opportunities that we could build into a study like that. For example, the anchor study was designed as a randomized control trial where we divided the group at random into people who had biopsy-proven HCIL and who were treated, and a group who had biopsy-proven HCIL who were monitored very carefully. In addition to answering the primary study question as to whether or not the treatment actually reduced progression from HCIL to cancer, we were able to collect a number of specimens along the way that we think will be very informative regarding some of the events at the tissue and molecular level that will help us understand why some people with HCIL progress and some people don't, and also um, perhaps provide us with some tests that will identify people at particularly high risk of progression, uh, a so-called biomarker, so that we don't necessarily need to treat everybody who's got HCIL. Gotcha. And I want to talk about HCEL in a moment, just to pick your brains on what it is and to give more information to our listeners. But before I do, I want to back up a little bit and um, ask what the correlation between HIV and increasing instances of anal cancer are, as well as, you know, we have the HPV vaccine, which has been approved to uh, help prevent as you mentioned, cervical cancer, but also certain other cancers such as anal cancer. So given this, why did it feel necessary to examine what you were looking at in the anchor study, just generally considering um, the correlation with HIV and anal cancer, as well as why we need to dig deeper beyond just you know having an HPV vaccine? Sure. Um, I think I can take a stab at this. Um, and, and let me just say that there are a number of cancers that are increased, not all cancers, in people with HIV. And each one is its own interesting story. Um, in the case of anal cancer, um, several things come together to um, lead to its increase. One is that um, in people infected with HPV and, and infected locally in the anal region, um, those that are immunodeficient will have a higher incidence of progression to, um, to HCL and then to anal cancer. They just don't clear the, the, the viral infection as well. Also, men who have sex with men have a higher exposure of HPV infection in the anal region. And because of, their, um, because of various sexual practices, they have a higher incidence of this. So those two things really, really come together to, to lead to a higher incidence of, um, of HPV. And, and again, you know, unlike some other cancers like Kaposi's sarcoma, where if the immune system is um, relatively intact, people can, um, can really fight it off and even regress the cancer. In the case of HPV, the relationship with immunodeficiency is a bit less, um, less clear cut. Yeah, I can add to that a little bit because uh, 
HPV, as Bob said, is not as clearly associated with immune suppression as some of the other cancers. Clearly, immune suppression is a, main, is a major risk factor, not only for people with HIV, but also people who are immunosuppressed for other reasons. For example, uh, organ transplant recipients who are given medicine to prevent rejection of their graft causes some immunosuppression, and they're at increased risk of anal cancer. So immune suppression is definitely a risk factor, but unlike some of the other cancers, this is also a cancer that is found in the general population. It's quite rare in the general population, but if you look at the totality of the number of cases of anal cancer, in fact, most of them are found in people who don't have immune suppression. It's just that the people who have immune suppression are at particularly high risk and merit particular attention because we can have the most impact in terms of prevention in those groups. And, and getting to the second part of your question, the HPV vaccine, this vaccine is um, remarkably good at preventing HPV infection with the strains of HPV that, that go on to cause cancer. Some strains are do and some don't in this. Um, but once people are infected with HPV, the vaccine really has very little effect. So that people that, um, and the vaccine was only approved um, earlier this century in men, so that for, for people that receive the vaccine, they're very unlikely to go on and get anal cancer as far as we know. But there is a whole generation of men who've never received the vaccine and are infected with HPV. And for those people, we really need secondary prevention. And that's why the treatment of HCL is so important. It's also worth mentioning that, you know, there are other groups of people with HIV who are also at risk of anal cancer. So for example, the anchor study included women, included transgender people, included uh, men with HIV who don't have sex with men. They're not as at high risk of anal cancer is the men who have sex with men, but they're still at unacceptably high risk. So all of these groups, regardless of their risk factor for acquiring HIV, are at increased risk of anal cancer. And similar to the men who have sex with men, many of them, many of the people who currently live with HIV are at an age when uh, it would have been too late for them to receive the HPV vaccine given when it was uh, approved, which was in 2011 because we know that the vaccine is preventive and works best when people have had limited or no uh, sexual activity. So the more uh, sexual exposure you've had, the less effective the vaccines, which is one of the reasons why CDC guidelines, for instance, approve it routinely up to age 26, can be given up to age 45 after a one-on-one -on -one discussion with a provider. But the median age of people living with HIV in the US is over 50 at this point. So it's simply a matter of having a group of people who wouldn't have had the benefit of the vaccine. And this is absolutely the group that we should focus on for what we call secondary prevention. Prevention of HPV infection, the causative event, is primary prevention through the vaccine. Secondary prevention is looking for prevention of progression to cancer after the virus may have caused a precancerous lesion. So this study focused on treatment of high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, or HCLs, 
in HIV-infected individuals with the question of whether it can prevent anal cancer. Can you explain what HCILs are for those who don't know? Sure. Um, before I get to that, I just want to clarify that the, the HPV vaccine was approved in women for the prevention of cervical vulvar and vaginal cancer in 2006. And it was approved for the prevention of anal cancer in women and men in 2011. So the vaccine has been around a little bit longer for women, but even still, most women uh, in the US uh, living with HIV wouldn't necessarily have had the full benefit of the vaccine. Uh, as to what HCIL is, we know that there is a spectrum of change that happens after initial HPV infection. So HPV infects only skin cells in the anogenital area. Most of the time when HPV is there, it doesn't actually cause a problem at all. But if it does cause a problem, it causes one of two kinds of changes. One is what we call low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, or LSIL. Warts is an example of these. These are not considered to be precancerous. An even smaller proportion of people, when they develop a problem, develop what we call HCIL, that's high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions. These are lesions which are usually asymptomatic, but have changes at the molecular level in them, which put them partway on the road to cancer. The good news is that even most of these HCIL lesions don't progress to cancer. Some of them just stay at that level. Some of them regress by themselves, but a, some proportion of them do progress to invasive cancer. This is associated with persistence of the HPV causative agent. There is presumably some form of an immune response problem because most people control the virus quite well with a normal immune response, but some people simply don't control the virus. And so those individuals are at higher risk for getting those HCL lesions, and those HCL lesions are believed to be the necessary precursor to the cancer. So since we know that some proportion of these can progress, we have the opportunity to interfere with the progression by removing them before that progression event can occur. Again, this has been proven to work quite nicely in the cervix. It doesn't work on everybody, but it works on the great majority of women. So that secondary cervical cancer prevention through the treatment of cervical HCIL is one of the great public health stories of the last century. But uh, we needed to know whether the same thing could happen in the anus. Theoretically, it should, given the similarities between cervical and anal HCIL and cervical and anal cancer. But there are a number of challenges in people with HIV, which made it a question which really needed to be answered. We couldn't really take it for granted that it was going to work. We had to show it. And some of the challenges that we particularly have in people with HIV include having very large areas of abnormality and multifocal areas of abnormality and difficulty finding all of it and high recurrence rates. And these are all um, factors that have been shown to result in failure of cancer progression in the cervix. So since we knew these could also potentially happen in the anus, we needed to show that the prevention efforts shown to work so well in the cervix also worked in the anus in the setting of HIV. So 
since the study showed that treating H-cell can prevent anal cancer, can you also elaborate on the parts of the study that provide a rationale to screen for H-cell? And also, you know, how is H-cell screened for? And, you know, what do we need to do to make those screenings more widely available? Well, sure. I mean, until we had evidence that treatment of H-cell actually had a clinical benefit, i.e. reduction in progression to cancer, there really wasn't very much rationale to screen for it. There's really not much point in screening for a condition that you can't do anything about. But once we knew that actually there was a clinical benefit to treating H-cell, then it started to make sense to go and look for H-cell in people. Most of the people, as I mentioned before, who have H-cell are asymptomatic. And so the only way to identify people with an asymptomatic condition like that would be to devise some screening method to, to find it. We know that we can find HSIL using the main technique used in the ANCHOR study, which is called high-resolution anoscopy. It's very similar to cervical colposcopy. In fact, it uses a colposcope. That's the technique that we use to identify the lesions, biopsy them to prove that they're H-cell and make sure that a person doesn't have cancer. And it's a technique that we use to guide our therapy because most of us use a targeted technique, usually an ablation technique, such as electrocautery, to uh, remove the areas and try and spare as much of the normal tissue as, as possible. But the problem with that is while that's a very good way to find the lesions is it's not practical as a screening method. It takes a lot of time, it's expensive. There is very limited person power available to do this since this is a relatively new technique. It's a challenging technique and it takes a long time to get really good at it. So HRA, while it is the best way to find H-cell is not suitable as a screening method, just like cervical colposcopy for women is not a screening tool for women. So in the cervix, we do cervical cytology or pap smear, sometimes with HPV co-testing to identify women who would benefit from having colposcopy, which would be the next step in the evaluation if the cytology or HPV test is abnormal. So we think that we need to do something similar in the anus, which is to devise a screening algorithm that, that's practical, which will identify as many people as possible who really would benefit from HRA while minimizing the number of people referred to HRA who wouldn't benefit from it because of the limited resource that HRA is. Uh, we're still in the early stages of this. There are some uh, studies done on this, but we need more information before we can provide a definitive uh, treatment algorithm. The anchor study itself actually will, I think, provide a lot of information for that, even though it wasn't one of the primary study aims, because to identify the 4,446 people who had biopsy-proven HCIL and who were followed in the study, we needed to screen a number of people to find them. We ended up actually screening 10,723 individuals with HIV over the age of 35 to recruit to the anchor study. At that visit, we did a number of other tests, including a cytology and swab material for HPV testing. Uh, so we think that that 
analysis of the uh, screening population will provide a very large amount of information that can uh, be used in combination with existing information to inform screening uh, approaches. I know that there was a big focus on people with HIV for this study, but I'm curious about what other groups are at high risk for anal cancer. And does the study provide a rationale for H-cell screening in these other groups? I know there's the issue of making this kind of screening accessible and easier to do, but say we do get to scale that up eventually, should we make this a routine kind of screening that people get like pap smears or mammograms down the road? Bob, you want to take this one? No, I'll defer to you on it. Okay. Um, so you raised some very important points. Uh, we focused on people with HIV because this is the group at highest risk of anal cancer. But as we've been saying, they only contribute uh, a fraction of the totality of cases of anal cancer diagnosed in the United States every year. There are some other high-risk groups. I mentioned one already, which are people who are immunosuppressed for other reasons, such as a solid organ transplant, like kidney transplant. There's another group of people at increased risk, and that is women who have an HPV-related cancer at some other location in their anogenital tracts, for example, a vulvar cancer or precancer, cervical cancer. These are all associated with HPV. And we know that HPV can spread from one location in a person to another. So it's not surprising that women with cancers in the cervix or the vulva are at increased risk also of anal cancer. And then finally, another important risk group are men who have sex with men who are not living with HIV infection. So just like the people with HIV, they're at elevated risk of cancer compared with the general population. And they would probably be the next groups of people to consider for uh, screening. And the big question is, can the results of the ANCHOR study, which were generated strictly in people with HIV, be extrapolated to these other groups? I'm just going to give you my personal opinion here, which is based on um, just that and no real data. Uh, my personal opinion is that these recommendations should be extended to those other groups for two reasons. One is that, as I mentioned earlier, treating anal H-cell is probably more challenging in people with HIV than in any other group. And we did show a substantial reduction in anal cancer, a statistically significant reduction in the ANCHOR study. And my thinking is that if we were able to do so in a group as challenging as people with HIV, that the results should be as good, if not better, in the other groups that I've mentioned. That's number one. Number two is a more practical reason, which is although we would love to have the kind of evidence in those groups that we have now for people with HIV, I think it's going to be highly unlikely that an anchor type of study will ever be replicated in any group, including these other risk groups. I don't think we'll ever have a randomized controlled trial for a number of reasons, the size of the study that's needed, the expense, the difficulty in recruiting and following people. So I think the anchor data are probably going to be as good as we'll ever get for addressing the question of whether treatment of HCL can reduce the incidence of anal cancer. So this is, uh, a, I think, a question that's going to be debated in different
different groups. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how people come down on it. But I don't think that we're going to have better data. And I think, in my opinion, these are sufficient to uh, recommend some form of screening and treatment in those other groups. There's one last major consideration here, which is that even when you count those groups, along with people with HIV, there's still a substantial number of people who develop anal cancer who don't fit into any of these risk groups. And they're gonna be the toughest of all, I think, to identify and screen given the uh, relatively low prevalence of HPV infection and HCL in some of these populations. So that's gonna be another topic for future research, which is figuring out if there is some cost-effective way to try and identify the groups of people who actually contribute the bulk of anal cancers um, to um, the uh, totality in, in the United States every year. Definitely. Moving away from the screening a little bit, I want to talk about treatment options. The study finds that treating HCLs can be very beneficial for people at risk for anal cancer. So what exactly are the treatments that we have right now to treat HCLs? And how can people, especially those with HIV, navigate that treatment process? Well, um, you know, this is actually another very important area of research activity, because although we have some treatments and the anchor study showed that they are effective, one of the other lessons of the anchor study was that the progression rate to cancer despite treatment was higher than any of us would have liked. So although we should definitely be using what we have, we believe that we need to improve on the treatments that um, we have. This is one of the active areas of investigation, for example, in the AIDS Malignancy Consortium that Bob already mentioned. But amongst the treatments that we do have and which were used and shown to be effective in the anchor study, uh, there are two broad categories. One is what we call ablation. Where basically, we use high-resolution anoscopy to identify the lesions and then apply some form of destructive energy to remove those specific areas. The one that we use most commonly in the anchor study was electrocautery. Um, one form of that is called hyfurcation. It's a relatively simple office-based approach, so you don't need to go to the operating room. So that was uh, by far the most commonly used method in the anchor study, but there were other treatments that were allowable. So the clinicians who followed patients in the treatment arm in the anchor study were required to pick from a menu of options and these are the options that were the best ones available to us when we started the study and which remain to this day the main group of options. So in addition to the targeted ablation methods, we also had some topical approaches, some creams that patients could apply or study participants could apply themselves. One of them is 5-fluorouracil cream and another one was imiquimod. The anchor study was not designed to compare treatment A to B to C to D, but rather was a comparison of a treatment strategy versus no treatment. The uh, good news for us, though, was that um, since the great majority of anchor participants were treated with hyfurcation, and almost all of those were treated only with hyfurcation, 
We believe that we can ascribe most of the treatment benefit that we saw in anchor study to hyperfication and recommend that as a first-line therapy as a result of that. So bottom line is uh, we think hyperfication or some other form of office-based electrocautery or targeted ablation, it could be laser, it could be infrared coagulation, is probably the best first-line approach, but um, topical therapies such as 5-fluorouracil cream or micromod could potentially be used also. There's still a lot of studies ongoing to see how good uh, some of those other approaches are. And as I mentioned, um, we and others are doing uh, studies of other approaches, which we hope will be even more effective in the future for uh, treatment of anal age cell. Yeah, and while there are um, a number of research inquiries that you've mentioned throughout here, the study that you're currently doing is still ongoing. So I want to focus right now on some of those next steps. So next you're looking to analyze your biorepository of tissue samples from those who participated in the study. Can you explain what this process will look like and what kinds of discoveries you hope to make along the way? Sure, so um, we collected a series of specimens at defined intervals throughout the study. So everybody who was screened provided us, donated to us really um, some swab samples from the anal area as well as a blood sample. And then when somebody was actually enrolled in the study, if they met all the screening criteria, they continued to do that uh, throughout the study every six months or so. And so the blood the swabs and some of the biopsies that were collected along the way give us the opportunity to do a lot of different things. Uh, one is to look at um, things that may have indicated the presence of or absence of HCL or cancer at screening. These would be helpful in terms of defining screening algorithms as we discussed uh, earlier. So we can we plan to look for HPV, for example, uh, we plan to look at other potential markers of, of high-grade disease. Uh, there are also some things that we can look at in the blood, which may indicate the presence of increased risk of cancer. So that is also a plan. For people who were enrolled in the study and who were followed over time, particularly in the monitoring arm, we have what is functionally a natural history study where we have the opportunity to understand what were the changes that occurred in people who have high-grade disease as they progress to cancer, and how did they differ from people who had high-grade disease at the beginning of the study, but who never developed cancer. There's really three groups. There's the people who had high-grade at the beginning and who progressed. They were a small group, fortunately, but they were still an important group. There were 21 such individuals in the study. Uh, then there was the a group who continued to have high-grade disease but didn't progress. And then there was actually a group of people who showed spontaneous regression. The high-grade lesions actually went away by themselves. So we can compare the uh, some of the things going on at the tissue level, proteins, um, RNA, other markers um, to see what differentiated these groups. So for example, if we can find a protein, just as an example, 
in people who had a spontaneous regression versus people who didn't, then that might be a great way to tell somebody, well, you're showing evidence of this protein in your tissue or the blood or the swab, whatever the case may be. And we believe based on this that you, know, you don't have to come back to see us for a few years. We don't need to worry about you for now. Conversely, if we find some marker of progression from high-grade disease to cancer, the appearance of that marker might be an alarm bell for us to tell a person, well, now you're showing this particular protein, so we really should get you in and get you treated as, as soon as we can. So it's really a combination of understanding what we would call the molecular pathogenesis progression to cancer. We don't often in the HPV world have the opportunity to understand what happens from high-grade disease to cancer. And that's because it's likely that the anchor study will be the last study of this kind ever done. The reason is because in the cervix, we cannot study progression from cervical high-grade disease to cancer because it's standard of care to treat those cervical high-grade lesions. We should not be following them. The other major source of HPV-related cancer is in the oropharynx. And here the problem is that we don't have a well-defined precancerous lesion that we can follow. So the anus was really the last opportunity from a scientific point of view to understand the last step in progression to cancer. And the only reason we were able to do the anchor study was because we didn't have evidence yet that treatment actually worked. So I'm hoping no one will ever do another anchor study in the anus because now we know that treating HCL can work and it becomes just as much of an ethical issue to watch them now as it does in the cervix. That's not to say that we can't do some short-term studies, you know, very well monitored short-term studies of untreated high-grade disease, but we can't follow people in the long-term anymore. So this is really um, perhaps the last opportunity for us to understand the molecular events underlying progression from HCL to invasive cancer. So all of these things, combination of diagnostic tests to tell us who's got HCL or cancer right now, and then tests that can help us understand who's going to develop it in the future are where we're really hoping to go with the anchor biorepository. Even though you mentioned that you don't think there will be another study like anchor, there will certainly be lots of inquiries we can make as a result of some of your findings. So are there other research questions that are now worth considering because of the results of the study? And what would those next steps be? There's a very large, large list of questions. Anything that we find in the anchor study, for example, would need to be validated. So if, for example, we, based on the anchor findings, decide that a particular approach is the best way to screen people, we'll want to test that in non-anchor populations to, to confirm that what we found in anchor is generalizable to those other groups. So that's just one set of examples. We need to develop even better diagnostic tests so uh, we can use anchor and other study specimens to identify new tests. Those will need to be confirmed in other groups as well. Uh, as I mentioned, 
we feel like we need to have better treatments for anal H-cell. And so combination of work in the lab, uh, already ongoing by many groups around the world, plus some of the new pathways that we hope we'll be able to identify as a result of studying anchor specimens may lead to new treatments. These will need to be tested in animals and then in humans and ultimately in a, a phase three type uh, trial to uh, see if they, they work better than the existing treatments. So there's a very large number of inquiries that um, we hope will result from that. We always say that good science always generates more questions, and I don't think there'll be a shortage of questions here. Yeah, and um, just as we wrap up here, anal cancer may not be the most common cancer we hear about, but you know, as we part today, do you have any advice for those at risk or comments about where research in this space will continue to go in the future? And that applies to both you, Joel, and Bob, if you want to chime in as well. No, I mean, anal can't, you know, I want to take a step back and look at the, the general field of cancer in people with HIV. And anal cancer is just one of the cancers that, um, that are increased in this population. And is, as I said before, each cancer is its own story. So the Cancer Institute is really going to be looking at each of these um, in turn to figure out, you know, A, to understand the pathogenesis, B, to best figure out how to prevent these cancers and diagnose these cancers, and then treat them. And, um, you know, this, you know, again, it's really a diverse field that includes lymphomas and includes um, diseases like Kaposi's sarcoma. It includes lung cancer, which is increased in this population, and others. So um, there, there is a, really a lot of work to be done. You know, it, it, I'd also like to just sort of say that this is um, the largest study that the Cancer Institute has done in AIDS malignancy. For, for a number of years, we've funded the AIDS Malignancy Consortium, which is focused in this area. Um, and they've done a, a number of really um, groundbreaking studies in the treatment of lymphoma and Kaposi's sarcoma and others. But um, this one um, was the largest we've done to date. Um, and um, there was years of, well, not, not many years, but a, a period of a year or two of really intense discussion about moving forward with the study because it was obviously going to be quite expensive. And it had to be done in a large randomized um, trial. It was the only way to do this. And, you know, to try to project what the answers would be to get statisticians involved um, to see whether, in fact, we could accrue enough patients to do the study. And, um, you know, we're quite pleased that, in fact, the study proved to be um, a success in this regard and that we got an answer and we got an answer that is almost certain to change um, practice in this area. Um, and and I, I really want to, you know, tip my hat both to Joel and, and his research team and also to the participants who, um, who really made the study. They, um, they, they signed up for, you know, a randomized study in which they would either be treated or not. Um, they came in for multiple visits to be to be looked at, and um, the dropout rate in the study was was quite small. Um, I also want to tip my hat to Joel and his team, who really had to work 
to make sure that this study um, involved a representative population of people with HIV. Um, it was a, an incredibly diverse population. Um, it included people of low income, and they had to do a number of um, fairly innovative things to make sure that these people could be included in the study. So um, I, I just really want to tip my hat off both to the study team and to the participants who've, who've made this um, scientific advance possible. And I will add uh, again uh, to Bob's uh, comments about the contributions of the study population, because this, this was not an easy study to participate in. Uh, the participants were uh, sometimes subjected to quite uncomfortable procedures. And yet, as Bob mentioned, the dropout rate was very low. There was a genuine desire on the part of the participants to contribute not only to their own health, but to the health of the community. So it was, it was a very inspiring effort from, from that point of view. Uh, as Bob mentioned, we did try very hard to make sure that everybody had access to the study. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is. We had um, a quite broad representation of racial and ethnic backgrounds. We had transgender people. We had people of, of, of all income levels. We tried to make this as representative of the overall USHIV population as possible to maximize its generalizability. But uh, I do want to emphasize how important it is that any research studies being done uh, do make a very serious effort to be as inclusive as possible. I think that it strengthens the study on so many levels. I completely agree. And it also builds trust with people who feel like they aren't represented in clinical studies or the health system generally. So I love that you brought up that point, and I think it's a really great note to end on. I want to thank both of you again for sharing a piece of your story here in um, cancer research. And thank you again for explaining all of this information. It's so useful for many people out there. So thank you again. Great, thank you. Thank you. HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com.